Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello everyone, I'm Sam Fry and welcome to this August 2018 episode of Technique, the podcast where we talk to artists about how they're using technology. In these episodes, we talk to artists about the way that they work with technology, which makes this episode particularly on point as the theme is artistic process. But who is it with? I'll reveal that after a little bit of music. In today's episode, Richard F. Adams interviews Nick Rothwell. Here he is introducing Nick. With me today is an artist musician called Nick Rothwell, whose website is cassiel.com, C-A-S-S-I-E-L.com. Nick is currently in Edinburgh at the festival, not performing, but visiting. In this episode, Richard and Nick talk a lot about artistic practice, about the challenges and opportunities of collaborating as artists, and also, as they're both technologists, a bit about technology. Nick was in Edinburgh at the time, and so here he is talking a little bit about why he was there. I graduated from Edinburgh, got my first degree here, and the reason I'm up here is that there was a performance by Wayne McGregor's company, dance performance at the Festival Theatre, part of the official festival, and I did the software that kind of controls and mediates the, the dance piece. And because I graduated from Edinburgh University as well, I was contacted by the Edinburgh Futures Institute, that's a new kind of university spin-off looking at collaboration between science and creative arts to uh, be on a panel discussion. So I was up for that on Monday, and since then I've just been hanging around doing fringe stuff, really. So it's your first um, degree in science? Yeah. First degree is computer science, yeah. and then I did a PhD also computer science, and then from there decided, well, I'm not sure I want that as a, as a full-time career, so I kind of drifted into the arts, into music, and then visuals, bits of sound design, software for the arts as well. So I kind of diversified as time went on. I mean, this is an interesting thing for these podcasts, but also for me personally, that you know I've come the other way from art, sort of to be a programmer for a living, and I'm now a, a, an architect as a day job. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, very interested in the fact that the traditional lines have been completely demolished, not blurred, between who can do what. And I'm very interested in how you learn the nuances of the other subjects that you sort of move into. I kind of drifted into it, I think. I mean, I think my first push was I've always been a music lover despite having no musical training at all as a child, you know, none of this kind of starting violent at the age of four or any of that. So I got through to writing my PhD and then decided, well, I've always you know, loved music and been interested in it, so now's, you know, damn well time to learn how it all works. So that was kind of the first push I gave myself. And then from there, I just got hooked on contemporary dance at some stage. I think I saw some work by uh, Rosie Butcher, who was doing this kind of nice, clean, postmodern architectural dance work back in the early 90s and just loved it. And then that was kind of my push into performance, theatre and dance. And from there, I think just seeing lots of it being made and being done was kind of my, my route into gaining, I guess, some degree of empathy with it, just having it kind of going by osmosis. It's been a you know, long, slow process over the last 20, 25 years. You know, these things generally don't happen quickly, but... That's kind of how I've arrived where I am now.
everything's process. I mean, that, I've always been obsessed with that. That's part of being a computer scientist. It's all about you know, systems, rules, and the way you build processes and then execute them or evaluate them or exercise them to give you interesting results. And yeah, it comes down to talking. Whenever I'm meeting a new collaborator, be it in dance, theatre, music, visuals, whatever, the first thing is you've got to sit down and talk and talk a lot. And that gives you some insight into your potential collaborator's way of thinking about their work. Not about what it might look like, but about how it's kind of structured internally, the skeleton, the kind of the, the inner structure of it. And that dialogue is vitally important. If you miss that, then you really can't collaborate in any way that's going to be rewarding or give you a good outcome. The word collaboration. Now, that, mm-hmm. that's, again, something else we've been sort of discussing a lot, the nature of how an artist works. Obviously, these podcasts are coming from the point of view of, and I'm saying this with inverted commas, artists. Collaboration is something that's coming through in all of them now, rather than, I think, if we did a, an artist podcast 30 years ago, we wouldn't have had the notion of collaboration anything like as big. And that's clearly a function of the technology and understanding technology and realising that it's more difficult to work with you collaborated, for instance, on, is it Cosmoscope? Yes, that's right. And how did that start? Because I under, as I understand it, that was set up initially, or initiated, if you like, by a scientist? Initiated by uh, Simon Nelson, who is Professor of Sculpture at Hartford University. Oh, OK. So it was initiated and, by an artist, right. <laughs> uh, yes. And he was working with Rob Godman, who's a reader in music at Hertfordshire as well. So you know, that's the kind of the core team of the three of us. Mm. And I worked with Simeon and Rob on a visual art piece called Plenum that we toured to Europe a bit. We took it to Poland and Estonia. And we then got a piece commissioned through the Wellcome Trust called Anarchy in the Organism, which was about modelling and responding to the way that cancer grows and is treated in the body. That was another visual piece. And then finally Cosmoscope, which was also supported by the Wellcome Trust which was looking at systems at the macroscopic level, molecular biology, and systems at the level of the human being. So we were looking at things like blood flow. So yes, those both came about because I knew Rob, because we worked together on a different collaboration a good 15 years ago, because I've been doing audio software and some sound design, and Rob was a composer. And Rob knew Simeon through university, so... That made that connection. And a lot of Simeon's work is very geometric, very fractal, very rules-based. So I think we kind of put it off through that common way of thinking fairly quickly. And then things just kind of moved on from there. And Simeon was very interested in systems. and He was doing visual art and we wanted to have some way of kind of applying software to be able to build those systems. So really building the systems and making the art rather than just kind of reading about the systems and then doing the art in a painstaking kind of manual. I've written a piece recently about how similar to agile in business, the artistic process actually is. Fail often, fail fast, you iterate, you take a piece of painting you're working on, you put it against the wall, you start another one, you come back to the first one, you know, and you build a backlog, if you like, of jobs. That's kind of inevitable, I think, because, you know, creativity is so fickle. And you need that to be working before you can really make something that I think is worthwhile. And because it's so hard to kind of turn that on, it's virtually impossible. You've got to just keep bashing away, trying things, throwing pieces into the air, seeing how they land, trying out new processes, finding and building new tools. And I think you just, it's, a, it's a numbers game. You do that 
enough, you practice that enough, you spend enough time on it, and by virtue of the portion of time you can be creative, good stuff comes out. And I think there's no easier way around it than that. There's a myth, certainly with kids and, and undergraduates sometimes, that a piece of art just appears. Yeah, there's several myths. One is yeah. is that artists are somehow super amazing creative demigods and you know their art just appears because they are just absolute geniuses. And one of the other myths is that if you have the right tools and the right environment, suddenly your creativity just arrives. And certainly the music technology industry is kind of predicated on that. You know, All you have to do is buy this new thing and it will meet your creativity and away you go. So that's kind of playing to artists and securities, I think. In a well, way. I think that last point comes out very closely when you show people photographs and they go, ooh, you must have a nice camera. Yeah, it's exactly that, yes. <laughs> it's, yeah. uh, you know, their face sometimes when you say no iPhone. As you've suggested, it's not really that, that well explained. Art is presented as something so magical that's kind of, you know, comes from the heavens, and really it's not. The creativity part, I think, is, is interesting. There's something kind of magical about that. But otherwise, it's about working hard, identifying a process, trying new processes all the time, and every now and then some wonderful thing kind of just emerges. There is a magic to it. I mean, I found when I've done pieces of music I'm really, really pleased with, I will start working on something, working really hard on it, and then at some stage, something will happen, and I'll get a nice result and say, that's what I wanted. Well, that's, you know, I'm really happy with that. And looking back on it, there's kind of a blackout period of half an hour where something happened, and I just can't remember what it was like. So there is something just slightly magical about it, just throwing a little bit of kind of something supernatural in there. problem with being in the studio all the time if you're not careful is that you just try and make something creative just by sheer brute force and whilst the effort's necessary really it's the subconscious that does the work so you've got to kind of give that a chance so if you can kind of bypass your conscious self-criticism and just you know let the subconscious do something go and have a shower take a walk look at some other artwork you know watch tv for a bit and then come back and if you're lucky your subconscious has kind of been cranking away on it in the background it comes back and says oh this is what you want after all and you go yeah that's it exactly Sorry, I went down a rabbit hole there when you were talking about <laughs> Cosmoscope, and I could go down that that particular rabbit hole for four days, I think. You'd been contacted, you started working in collaboration. What did you actually build? What we built in the end was a large steel structure about three metres across. Essentially, it was kind of like a three-dimensional display system, like an enormous crystal ball, if you like, mm-hmm. with about 2,000 LEDs scattered throughout it. It was very geometrical, so it was built out of all these uh, triangular and tetrahedral sections, and it had a, a kind of a fractal quality to it so even if nothing was plugged in if you saw it almost in darkness it had this kind of brooding gothic presence and then as i said it was these 2000 leds all kind of scattered throughout the the entire structure from the outside to the inside so it could be treated as almost as a three-dimensional projection surface i spent a lot of my time building tools that let us do things like build three-dimensional objects in color and then kind of pan them and rotate them and move them through this structure and that was kind of the basis for building bits of experience that would kind of reflect cosmological physics or reflect molecular changes or, or reflect fluid flow and blood flow. And that would depend so, on the, the rules you put in, basically, that would govern the system. Yeah, there was a whole bunch of little software plugins, little algorithms that could do these various things, plus a whole set of tools for combining them so you kind of cross-fade between one three-dimensional animation and a different one. We could vary the speed, we could run them forwards and backwards, we could map various images, patterns to the top or the bottom or one side or the other side, we could rotate them in various ways. From my point of view, about half of the project, half of the effort was building the tools that would let us do this kind of thing, kind of gives us a language. Then the other half was building the actual content based on these tools, so populating the thing with all the, the kind of the different experiences that we wanted to show.
Let's wind back a bit then to you said yeah. you got very interested in dance. Would you talk a little bit about how dance and computing are colliding? Well, I think there's two distinct ways in which that's happening. The first is we're seeing more use made of technology as part of the medium of dance, whether it's like on-screen projections, whether it's uh, motion capture, tracking sensors, that kind of work. The other is we're seeing software thinking kind of merging with choreographic thinking in the creation of dance. In that case, you may not see anything on stage different from a normal dance performance. So the piece of Wayne McGregor that's touring at the moment, called Autobiography, even though it's technologically based on sequencing Wayne's DNA and building a software system around that that actually reorders and lays out the, the choreography, nothing about it that you watch tells you that, unless you see it more than once, in which case you see that it's actually being reordered algorithmically for each performance. So the dance works where you see technology, and it's kind of presented as part of, as part of the medium in a way, and as dance works where the technology is purely something constructive which provides a process or disrupts a process or modifies the way in which the dance is constructed. Is there a desire to archive something like that? Because when you do that work, it can often be brilliant, but then there's no copy of it. And oh, that's a whole other yeah. discussion we can have about, about <laughs> what it means to create a work of dance and, and what its lifetime is and how you actually preserve it and regenerate no, but, but it and to be honest, it over the years. <laughs> But, but to be honest, for 2,000 years, people will have gone to see a piece of dance and it will not change significantly from performance to performance. It might do. Somebody might mm-hmm. get injured. There might be a physical restriction in the building or, or space. But generally, it won't change significantly. The same with classical music. You and I both know classical music changes depending on the conductor, depending on who's available, etc., etc. But to the mm-hmm. ordinary person on the street, they still just walk along singing... Yes, you're right. Classical music is, well, generally it's kind of a standard audience. It's notated in a way that can be reproduced. So if you look at modern electronic music, then stuff that's made in studios 20, 30 years ago is very hard to reproduce unless you can find the exact same sound sources, effects Mm. processors, mixing environment and so on. So there's there's a situation now where this stuff isn't translatable out of the precise environment and technical environment and technology that was used to make it. And that's true of contemporary dance. I mean, the word contemporary means it's constantly reinventing itself, so it is actually always something new to an extent. And dance is now made with particular costuming materials, set, lighting, staging, a lot of it's site-specific, so it's in the same situation as modern music production it is very dependent on the resources that were made available to it at the time it was made and first shown that is a, a question for me then of archiving that very conscious of archiving because i've been using youtube with my kids to go through cultural events and see films and and i said mm-hmm. we're very lucky to live in the first generation if you like of over the length of recorded history where we can actually record things. It occurred to me while doing this process of watching Beatles on the Morecambe and Wise show or whatever, that in the past, people would not have been able to have any record of John Lennon other than what he recorded. Or even before recording, no record at all, just memories. And I wonder how this you feel this impacts archiving the artwork. Well, there's a big push towards digital archiving of dance. If you look at the work of Motion Bank in Frankfurt, Mm -hmm. for example, they've been kind of working on this for 10, 15 years now. That work came about from conversations with William Forsyth at Ballet Frankfurt. And Ballet Frankfurt went through a funding crisis about 15 years ago. And part of that was Forsyth found it very hard to explain to potential funders in Frankfurt what it was they were actually doing. What's the value of this? What's the actual artistic, creative process that's worthy of support? You understand that in music, you know, you've got composers, you've got orchestras to run and so on understanding what is the actual content of dance that's being made with these people's money 
And Forsyth thought about that, and that work led towards this idea of some way of archiving dance almost from the inside, so archiving the process that was used to make it, as well as the way it kind of shows itself on stage. So if you go to motionbank.com, I think it is, you can just see archived pieces from various choreographers, and there are things ranging from videos to diagrams to three-dimensional OpenGL renderings based on some of the, the movement scores through to database work, so the Pina Bausch archive is connected in there as well. So there's a lot of work being done on archiving, but it, it gets you back to the question of what is it, what's the fundamental thing about a piece mm. of dance that you want to archive it? It may not be what it looks like, it may be the process that was used to make it. So if you talk to Shoma Jaya Singh about archiving, she says it's about what are the things in the dancers' minds that they are working on when they're performing, because that's really the, the centre of what the dance is, rather than what might emerge that you can see. think the work you're seeing and the work you're being involved with over the years with dance is affecting how people dance? From a purely practical point of view, the fact that every dance has a phone and laptop means that they can, they can self-document, self-audit really easily. Mm-hmm. And that's proved to be a very useful process. Having said that, you go into any dance studio where a piece is being made and you'll find every dancer will have a notebook, you know, notebook yeah. and pens. That's still the way things are done, which is interesting because it means that dancers are still using their own notations and their ways of thinking about the material that makes. So the idea is coming from choreographer to dancers, dancers will actually work with that material, process it, transform it in some way, and then they'll use their own notations, be it in text or in images, to hold on to that, kind of internalise it. Technology has helped at the kind of the grassroots level just for holding material and, and documenting it, just like it helps when you're writing a book. Mm. It's easier having a word processor than having a typewriter. And I won't get back to this issue of kind of framing and engagement again, because I'm you know, not, not going to go down that route of why typewriters are fantastic or otherwise. But that's all my technology has helped, I think. As a side, I, I see a lot of bad use of technology in dance performance. That's why I'm being kind of slightly resistant and kind of okay. walk, walking, walking around dancing this, this directly. Despite what I said earlier about technology being used as part of the medium of dance, I don't believe in technology as a medium. I think it's, it, that's kind of dangerous and it's kind of lazy. And I've seen that done a lot and it becomes a, a rather bad crutch on which to lay work that's not very good generalizing here obviously but i think there is still there can be some laziness on the part of artists to think that because they've employed technology that somehow sprinkles a magic pixie dust over what what they've done and kind of imbues it with value and that's not the case so i'm I'm kind of you know resting to answer that question because i think there are are dangers there as well as opportunities as a visual artist i'd say that's the equivalent of filter culture where people just Mm -hmm. put a filter on a photograph and say oh it's art suddenly no thought to the image there's no thought to the context no thought to the process you know I get asked about my work, how do I do it? And yeah, I use filters, but I also physically paint into it on a computer with a stylus. So here's a question for you. Yeah. Suppose you use, you just use some filter, you know, which took you 30 seconds, and it's something nobody else had used. And you then took the result of that, which you'd done kind of pretty lazily without thinking about it, put it in a frame, put it into a gallery, and people loved it. But I think that's fine yeah. in the sense that you'd be aware of what you were doing in terms of... Pro- and this is interesting, isn't it? This is layers of process and systems because at the micro level the piece of work is effectively nothing special you've accidentally chanced on something it's serendipity but Mm -hmm. you recognize there's a specialness by putting it move up one level in the system by putting a frame on it and putting in a gallery you give it a broader context 
you also, I think, give it provenance. You, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You give it kind of provenance. And to an extent, I mean, it's going back to the technology thing. Things can be viewed by an audience as being difficult and creative challenges have been overcome when, in fact, they aren't. It's very hard sometimes to accurately show where the effort has gone and whose effort it is. You see it in music software all the time. Mm. You know, I could buy a sample set of something really unusual, spend five minutes with it, and... People who don't know what I bought, what that you know, what that resource is, I think it's all my work, and I can claim that. So one thing technology gives you is it kind of kind of intermediates. Isn't that? There's now lots of different things you're bringing together, and you could argue that the creative effort is not just yours, but it's actually being shared between you and the bits of creative effort you paid for in buying these things. Again, I think it just comes back to process. No reason why you can't use kit pieces and use them in a way which is which where you've engaged in trying to be creative with them and do something which is which is rewarding, which is new, and which you wouldn't be able to predict necessarily from the pieces you started with. But again, it comes back to, to audiences. You know, how much do they understand or want to ex- understand about the process? Because the more they understand about the process, the more they'll see where the effort has gone and what's been, you know, what has been done to create what they're, what they're looking at or experiencing. And if there's not that engagement, then there's always the opportunity for people to get the wool pull over their eyes. You know, they get somebody else's work or some other product or some creative gizmo of some kind hastily repackaged or sometimes even not put in a frame put on a wall and given the respect it doesn't necessarily deserve the nice working technology I find it frustrating sometimes lots of people do so that's today's episode that was Richard F. Adams speaking to Nick Rothwell And thank you very much to Nick for being part of the episode. If you're interested in Nick's work and you want to find out more, then you can follow him on his website. Here he is explaining the best way to get to that. Uh, well, shout out to Cassiel.com, which is the one that you mentioned at the beginning. If you go to http colon double slash Cassiel.com, so not the www version, but just Cassiel.com, that's slightly more up to date, and that has a, a blog roll of stuff I'm working on with images and bits of kind of reflective text and so on. So that's the place really. Everything else just hangs off that. So again, thank you to Nick, and thanks again to those that made the music for this episode. As always, we thank Sean Miller, plus we had some music today from Jazzar. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to get in contact with us, you can do so on Twitter at Technique UK or via our website, create-hub.com. Plus, if you like listening to this show, why not share it? We really appreciate it whenever we see anyone mention the show on Twitter or other social media platforms. So please do. Aside from that, we'll be back in a month's time with another episode. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves. Goodbye. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.